Okay. Well, we don't have the, the docs um, today, but we will be in chapter 17 of the Confession. And so if you're able to pull that up, um, that might be helpful to, um, to follow along. And we use the, um, what's it called, the common or the, the modern. modern English. If you Google modern English Westminster Confession 17, perhaps that will get you on the, on the right track. But to, get, to kick things off, um, <clears throat> there are some... Um, People, some characters in, in, in the Bible, in, in the story of redemption, that when you just say their name, there's a, a virtue, a Christian virtue, or even a, a Christian doctrine that, that comes to mind. So let's, let's think of a few of those. Um, so Abraham, obviously we've been going through the story of Abraham. What, what comes to mind when you think of Abraham? What's a defining marker of Abraham? Faith. Faith. Yeah, Absolutely. Faith, that's not a trick question. Uh, Solomon, how about Solomon? What comes to mind? Wisdom. Wisdom, the wisdom. Solomonic wisdom. What about Job? Patience. Patience, absolutely. The patience of Job, suffering well. How about the Apostle John? Love. Exactly right. Love, he even self-identifies as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And even his epistles, um, so plead. A pleading to, for the church to love one another. How about, how about David? A man after God's own heart? A man after God's own heart? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think of him as kind of a picture of biblical masculinity. He's a, a poet warrior, which is awesome. He goes and strikes down 10,000 and then writes a song about it, um, which is really beautiful. How about Judas? Betrayal. Betrayal. Yeah. <laughs> you don't really find that. <laughs> or, or categories. Categories is a better word. Um, betrayal, you don't see that often. So we're having a boy. Have you come up with a name? We have, actually. It's, it's Judas. So, yeah. you, know, you, don't, you don't hear that. How about, how about Peter? Bold. Bold. Absolutely. <laughs> Anything else with Peter? And again, there's no right or wrong. Well, there could be a wrong answer. But not just... Early Peter. Brash. Brash. Brash and bold. Um, I think both of those obviously are, are absolutely right. But I, I think there's a, another one um, that we could categorize Peter in, and it is a picture of the perseverance of the saints. Peter being a picture of the perseverance of the saints, um, which we'll be talking about. Um, but the perseverance of the saints is, is the doctrine that, that teaches that those who are truly saved, truly regenerated, truly um, in Christ will never ultimately and finally be lost. And so why do you think Peter might be a, a helpful picture or a kind of a, a picture of, of that doctrine? Any thoughts come to mind? I mean, the betrayal of Jesus, not just once, but like three times, yeah. and then the restoration uh, from that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly right. So you remember Peter's called. Matthew 4 with his brother Andrew drops his nets. And from there on, he is nothing but enthusiastic. He is um, even brash early on. But he really is one of Jesus' closest companions. He's at the Mount of Transfiguration. So the highest height where the glory of our Lord was unveiled for a moment. He was at the Garden of Gethsemane. So the lowest of low valleys for our Lord. He said he would be willing to die for our Lord, tried to kill a soldier <laughs> um, that uh, was arresting Christ. He cut off his ear. He was not aiming for the ear. 
Um, he was aiming for the neck <laughs> and the guy ducked. And this is Peter. And yet at the moment, the crucible moment of testing, he failed. He failed dramatically. He failed three times. He said, I never, he swore, I swear to God, I do not know who that man is. And so if we're reading the story for the first time, we might think, um, okay, this is not good. Um, he is, he's cut from Judas cloth. I mean, this is, this is a betrayal. And yet, one of the most comforting scenes, one of the most beautiful scenes moving in, in all scriptures is John's post-resurrection account. So they're, they're back to fishing again. The Lord's dead, very sorrowful. And the man from the shore starts to give advice on how to fish, on how to catch the fish, right? And it would perhaps appear that John was the first one to recognize who it is. And then John tells Peter that it's the Lord. And the text says, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, took off his coat, that stripped that, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples then came in after him, dragging the net full of fish, because they were not far from the land, just about 100 yards off. But Peter, Peter couldn't wait to get back to the Lord. And he was ultimately redeemed three times, he was asked. Not coincidentally, do you love me? Eat one for every betrayal, right? So the question is, why did Peter persevere in faith? Why did Peter persevere in faith? And here there is one specific text I'm thinking of that I wonder if it comes to your mind as to why Peter persevered in the faith. Yes. Right. You you are right. You are circling it right there. Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. So when you have turned again, our Lord, totally sure, then strengthen your brothers. He persevered because the Lord Jesus had interceded for him. So this is before the betrayal. The Lord says, this would have happened. You would have been sifted, but I prayed for you. So you're going to turn back. It's impossible that you would not because you are mine. I have prayed for you. And so that's a beautiful picture, I think, of what we're talking about when we come to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And again, chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession. And so we will work our way through these three. There are, there are three sections in it and could, could categorize, categorize the three sections as um, perhaps the, the what of perseverance. So what is, when we say that, what do we mean by the perseverance of the saints? Um, and all of these things we've already touched on with the Peter story. The, the why of the perseverance of the saints, that's part two. Why will we persevere? And then three, um, a realistic picture of what perseverance looks like. Namely, it's not a straight ascent to glory. There can be sometimes very terrible failings, even for those who, the one who is persevering. And so it's a, it, it's a caution to not presume upon that. Um, so I'm going to read part one and we will start making some progress here. <clears throat> Those whom God has accepted in his son and has effectually called and sanctified by his spirit can never completely or finally 
fall out of their state of grace. Rather, they shall definitely continue in that state to the end and are eternally saved. So that's the what of what perseverance is when we're talking about it. Now, now this doctrine is admittedly um, one that causes no small consternation for some. Some really recoil at the idea of perseverance, and, and it is one of the defining markers of Reformed theology as opposed to Arminian theology. Um, and it's often called by those who, especially by those who reject it, those who embrace it can call it this as well, but it's often called once saved, always saved, right? Have you heard that term? Once saved, always saved. They'll ask, do you believe in once saved, always saved? And I want to say that that's not a good articulation of perseverance of the saints, typically, because it assumes a man-centered view of conversion and salvation. And so if I can qualify that statement a lot, I could be fine with it. But often when it's spoken, it's coming from the paradigm of man-centered conversion thinking. Namely, it, it, it often has in mind as salvation, simply praying a prayer at some point in your life. And so they would say there's no way that's true. There's no way you could pray a prayer and get saved. You can get some fire insurance and then live however you want. That, that's often logically where that's coming from. That can't happen. You can't be once saved, always saved, pray a prayer, and then go and live however you want. And we would say we completely agree with you on that. Um, because that's not what getting saved is, we would argue. Just because you went to a church service and your emotions got all riled up and then the man in front said, if you pray this prayer, you will not go to hell and, and you will be saved. That, just because you said the words that the man said does not mean that you were saved in that moment. That's not the biblical picture of true conversion. True conversion is true repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ and acknowledging his lordship over all of life. That's what true conversion is. Now, people certainly, and to be clear, are saved in those circumstances. And so I'm not saying if you draw a line to your conversion being that type of situation that it was false. I'm not. Untold thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been saved through these type of evangelistic crusades. What I am saying is it doesn't automatically mean just because you said a string of words together repeating what somebody said you should say that you were saved. And this is important because we've all known people who seemed to be a Christian, who, who prayed a prayer, or who walked an aisle, and then walked away from Christ. And so naturally, and I get, I, I get the pushback to this, naturally you would say, well, how could you say once saved, always saved? That person was a Christian, and, and now they're not. Um, so you can understand how someone could get there. Well, the answer um, to does that undermine perseverance is, is no, it, it doesn't. Rather, that just simply shows that that person was not actually ever truly converted. So false profession is a clear biblical category, and we can even use our, our Lord's own words. In, in John 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life. They'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus says, no one snatches my sheep out of my hands. It is impossible for a sheep to be plucked out of Christ's true fold. 
But he also says in Matthew 13, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and then immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. The, the root of the matter is not there. So he endures for a little while. But when tribulation or persecution comes because of the word, then he immediately falls away. And so that's also a cautionary tale that our Lord says some receive the word with joy, apparently. But the moment the pressure comes, they, they quickly show that the root of the matter is not there. So this is just something that needs to be acknowledged up front, that just because someone says they're a Christian, that doesn't make them a true Christian. And so when we go back to the text of the confession, this is why they are so careful to talk about precisely who they're talking about, who should have confidence that they will persevere as a saint. It doesn't say somebody who prayed a prayer. It says, those whom God has accepted in his son and has effectually called and sanctified by his spirit. So that's who we're talking about. Someone who has truly been called and was sanctified by the spirit. So this is the difference between Peter and Judas. Both were called, both initially perhaps seemed to be Christians, but the root of the matter was not in Judas. He had not actually trusted in Jesus Christ. He had done so because it was expedient for, for his purposes. And he may have at, at times even had real religious feelings. Or our Lord even says, some will say, did we not cast out demons in your name? Um, so now let's consider a, a, a few texts to, to just support this doctrine generally. I already read the, the John 10 one, which is just such a beautiful picture. Um, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hands. Then we have Philippians 1, 6, which says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying, if, if the Lord has truly began this good saving work in you, he will be the one who brings it to completion ultimately at the day of Christ. In 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things, these qualities that he had just talked about, evidences of true conversion, you will never fall. And another one, Job 17.9, Job says, or the... The text says, yet the righteous holds to his way and he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. Section two, <clears throat> this endurance of the saints does not depend on their own free will, but on God's unchangeable decree of election flowing from his voluntary unchangeable love it also depends on the effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, on the indwelling spirit and indwelling seed of God in the saints, and on the nature of the covenant of grace. All of these establish the certainty and infallibility of their preservation. And um, I love... I love this section, um, not least because uh, it shows a, 
a beautiful picture of what we would call the, uh, the economic trinity as opposed to the ontological trinity. So the ontological trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How, how are they distinct from one another in who they are? Um, they're all one God. The Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Father. Ontological trinity. The economic trinity is how does that actually then play out? How do they work differently, do different things in the life of the believer? And we, and we see here the, the trinity are all conspiring together um, for our perseverance. And uh, even as we go through this, I, I think perhaps it could be said that, that a better name for perseverance of the saints would be the preservation of the saints. That's actually probably a more descriptive biblically word, not so much our perseverance, but our, our preservation by God is absolutely certain. Um, so let's, let's consider this um, real quick, where we see each of the Trinity at work in, in preserving those who are saved, who are in Christ. So first we see um, the Father, so the love of God the Father towards the church has, uh, that, that compelled him to voluntarily decree our election. Um, so the, they don't say Father there, they, they say God, but even um, Christ often referred to, the, um, referred to the Father as God. And so it, it is common whenever you see the Son and the Spirit spoken of, but only God to assume that's, that's the Father in that. A couple of verses, <clears throat> Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. The Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So it was already happened before the world even existed that we, Christians, the church, should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And so there we see the, the sovereign election of the Father before the world even existed. It was done, and he did it in love. In love, he predestined us. Um, for the sake of time, I'll skip that next text. Then, then the son, um, the text says, it also depends on the effectiveness of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ. And so what, what does that mean? Well, it, it harkens back to what Jesus said to Peter. The, the reason that Peter would not be lost is because Jesus was interceding to the Father on Peter's behalf, and it is unthinkable that the Father would not do what the Son was asking him to do. Jesus prays for the Father on behalf of the church always and constantly. John 17 is one of the dearest chapters for the Christian in, in all of Scripture. It is the Son praying to the Father on behalf of the church. Um, it is a beautiful comfort to, to read that. Hebrews 7.25 Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. And so right now in the heavenlies, the ascended Christ is actively interceding on behalf of the body of Christ, which makes sense. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. And so he speaks on behalf of us to the Father constantly. First John 2, 1 John 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate before the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it's interesting when you think about it, because Jesus isn't, according to Scripture, the only one who is standing, in a sense, on behalf of the church to say something about them. We also have someone else who is speaking things to the Father about us, namely Satan, and he's called the accuser. So, Revelation 21.1, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And so you have Satan who is accusing the brethren. You can see this in in Job, um, which is a fascinating text. But he's not the only voice there, and he's certainly not the most convincing or loudest. We also have Christ then standing on our behalf, interceding for us. And, uh, And that's here we see not only the intercession, but it says based on the merits of Christ as well. Um, and that's why his voice is so much louder than Satan's is because he's the one who died for the church. He is the one who ransomed the church. He's the one who purchased the church and he is the holy ascended son of God. And so now what he says goes according to the church because they are, they are his. Hebrews ten twelve through 14 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, so this is talking about the the merit of Christ, he did something to make what he's saying on behalf carry weight. He offered for uh, for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected For all time, those who are now being sanctified in real time, we could say. So that's why Satan's accusations can't stick anymore because of what Christ did. Um, So we have the Father, the Son, and then they they highlight the the Spirit as well, namely the the deposit of the Holy Spirit that, that is given to a true convert. It cannot be retracted. The Holy Spirit cannot regenerate, cannot indwell a human, and then at some point flee. It just can't happen. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed, sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So we see all members of the Trinity at work to to preserve us, to assure our our perseverance. Now, one thing I want to hit on here that I I think is, is, is important, and it's not in the confession, but what about those texts that, that really do make it seem like you could lose your salvation. And there, there's two in particular, and they're both in, in Hebrews. And, and we really have to look those head on. It, often, that's the one where you just skip pretty quickly because the language really is jarring. And so I, I want to, I don't know if we'll actually get to the very end, but I, I think this is important. I want to look at these texts and consider them for a second um, because 
we, we want to really understand why we believe what we believe and, and not have problem passages, um, not just have those passages. We don't look at those because that seems to go against this. The majority seems here. That seems at odds. No, we want to understand. Not that we will exhaustively understand, but have dealt with it and can think thoughtfully, speak thoughtfully about it. First one, <clears throat> Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. So again, if, if, I am, if I reject this doctrine, these are the two places I go to do that. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So who's the them? Someone who tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So that's the one who is going to hell. The one who shared in the Holy Spirit. Next one, Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and here it is, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. So putting those together, the person who has fallen away has, what is it, shared in the Holy Spirit and was sanctified by the blood of the covenant. So what in the world do we do with this? So there's only two, two options. One is you can lose your salvation. <laughs> that would be a simple one. Yeah, they were saved. Now they're not, not saved. Another way would be to understand the nature of covenant biblically. Uh, so this is most clearly seen in um, why we baptize infants. When that happens, something objectively is happening they are now being grafted into the visible church, the body of Christ. They have been welcomed into the covenant community. Paul in Corinthians, he says, children of at least one believing spouse is holy, is sanctified. That doesn't mean that every single child who's ever born to a believing spouse will make it to heaven. So we need to have another category here, is what's true. And what's true is it is part possible and tragically does happen to have been sanctified into the covenant community, been even baptized into Christ, and something objective happened there. Namely, you became part of the visible church, but then at some point you apostatize. And that's what apostasy is. Apostasy is when you were formally, in a sense, part of the church. You were baptized, you even partook of communion. Um, you participated in the Holy Spirit, namely the benefit of the saints coming together and, and seeing prayers answered and per sitting at the, at the table of uh, communion and hearing the word of God proclaimed. And, and these are all gifts the Spirit gives to the body of Christ. So that it doesn't mean you experienced regeneration by the Holy Spirit, and that's what you've fallen out of. It's being part of the covenant community you experience the goodness of the Spirit at work in the life of that community, and then 
you rejected what was your inheritance, what you had been marked and set apart for. Um, you did not take hold of Christ by faith. You did not take hold of your baptism by faith. And that's why it's such an outrageous thing, because it was your inheritance that you should have taken hold of by faith, but you didn't. And so that's why it's talking about being sanctified by the blood of the covenant. That's powerful language. Well, that tells us, okay, we need to think carefully about covenants. And there is a way to be in the covenant in a real objective sense and then to be out of the covenant um, because you have not, because you've apostatized. You have chosen to remove yourself um, from that. So that's, that's what those texts are, are getting at. And again, that takes careful, thoughtful consideration. That that's not easy stuff to, to look at face value. Um, but that's where we let Scripture interpret Scripture. So clearly, somebody who's truly saved cannot be lost. Our Lord could not have made that clearer. And yet we have church members who enjoyed the life of the body, um, participated in that, and then walked away. And so that's, and so as, as John would say, um, they, they went out from us because they were not actually of us. So it just was proving that they were the branches that were cut off, that were in the vine, but were cut off and sent, sent to the fire. So does that make sense? Any questions on that? Again, this is a, a, a big topic, um, so I'm just touching the, the, the top of it. Um, but we want to deal with the challenging texts as well and, and not just go to the, uh, the, the highlight reel texts. So any, any thoughts or, or questions there? having been so much involved in the Pentecostal ministry in, in college, it was definitely the case that the whole decisionism kind of approach to things, there were lots of people who even made it, and we, we were promoted ludicrously quickly, like, you know, mm-hmm. hours after you decide to Bible study the earth. And so there were guys who were fellow Bible study leaders with me, and this is like, Facebook was coming out and stuff, and so I'm friending them, and we graduate and I see them straight up apostatize uh, yeah. within a very short order yeah. uh, after leaving college. And at the time I knew them. And it, it definitely was something that you know I've had to wrestle with for quite quite a while here is that they they signed up really quick, but the, the I think your your earlier one of the, the rocky soil yeah. is mm-hmm. that when this was a cool thing to do and there were lots of friends around and shallow soil, it could, it could last in that fervor, stir, everybody started to hear about the emotions of like, mm-hmm. could, when that was available to them three times a week of church and of Bible study and youth group, that they could have that fervor going, yeah. they would say, I'm a Christian. But they weren't really, and that's what, that's what the, the biblical perspective is to say that the root of the matter was not there. Yeah. yeah. That, and and it, it's very scary to be on the other end of that sometimes, if, especially if you're young and, and that's what you think Christianity is, is to see people who seem on fire for the Lord or whatever phraseology you love. It's, it's borne out over years and, and not months and days. Uh, just how quickly it can just pop into existence and pop back out. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was definitely a scary thing to go through. I mean, the, the, 
can speak to several examples of that. But uh, the other comment I was going to make is on the term perseverance for the section which we associate today as you know you run a marathon, you persevere through the end, and it's effort based. But perseverance in the old English context was more about abiding in strictly to something, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. I think that the purpose and could be wrong. But the purpose for the naming of the section is about abiding in believing strictly that God is the one who saves and does so with permanence as a result of covenant, uh, as opposed to like, oh, we're persevering because of our effort. You know, it's just persevering belief. Yeah. yeah, and again, only God knows the heart, right? We, we look at the outside. This is where we have Demas is a fascinating case. Two times, Paul sends greetings on behalf of Demas as a Christian minister alongside the Apostle Paul. And then his final letter, 2 Timothy, at the very end, he says, Demas abandoned me. He, he fell in love with the world. That is hard to... Jesus served communion to Judas. <laughs> that, so that's, that's what this is talking about. I think even Judas is a perfect example. Like, you were right there. You were enjoying the gifts of Christ. And then you walked away from it. So yeah, um, heavy stuff. Um, um, my, my, my purpose here, again, too, is, is I want us to be genuinely thoughtful about these things even and be prepared not just so that you can fight back arguments but for when you encounter the text we never want to quickly flip to the next page because we don't like what we saw there rather we, we want to give ourselves to understanding what does the inspired author mean here you know it can't contradict this god elected before the foundation of the world those who will be saved and yet there's this so that's that's what it's getting at okay and uh the last section i'll, I'll just i'll um I'll read it. <clears throat> nevertheless, nevertheless, the temptations of Satan, the world, and their old carnal nature, along with neglect of the means of their preservation, may lead believers to commit serious sins and to continue in them for a time. They consequently displease God. Yes, Christians can displease God and grieve his Holy Spirit. Have some of the fruit of God's grace and his comforts taken away from them have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and offend others, and bring temporal judgments on themselves. So this is just speaking to the reality that even genuine Christians, we are still in the fight. We can't coast to glory because we believe in the perseverance of the saints. You know, Satan is still going to come against us, and we can still commit grievous sins. It doesn't mean that you're not, you're not saved, um, but it does mean there can be real consequences for that. Second Samuel, we see or, or David is, is a clear example, a category for this. Um, uh, after his adultery with Bathsheba in 1210, um, the judgment pronounced upon him, now, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And so this is David, the man after God's own heart, which, which he was. So we don't say, well, I guess that verse is gone. We let the Bible speak to all of it. He is an exemplar. He is a man to be honored and um, followed. And he did a horrible sin that caused great havoc on his house. And that's, this is a redemptive story. This isn't a systematic theology that God has given us. And we would do well to remember that. Okay, that's all the... The time we have, but I, I, I would just say, remember, chapter 18 is of the assurance of grace and salvation, which will certainly be an encouragement, um, but let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, thank you for 
this uh, study, um, and I, I pray even as we um, engage your word, um, engage the incredible comforts that are ours in Christ through the gospel, um, we would also continue to, to mature um, in understanding your word um, in, in its totality, um, even texts that are, are challenging. And Father, I, I do pray, um, as the pastor of Pilgrim Hill, I pray that you would have a special grace upon us that, that everyone who is a part of, of this covenant community, ob- objectively, um, would be um, true. You would have had applied the root of the matter to them. And I, I pray specifically for our children. Father, we, um, we don't want to lose a single child at Pilgrim Hill. We, we don't want um, 51%, 49%. We want 100% faithful all the way to glory. And so um, we, even now, as parents and as teachers and as church members, ask for your special grace upon us that we would be um, a community of believers who truly are preserved and who persevere to the end um, for the glory of Christ.